Agile Rabbit make events for curious minds. In partnership with the University of Exeter, we focus on ideas, global affairs and the natural and scientific world. These events are set in contrasting venues across the Southwest to provide quirky experiences which welcome conversation. For more information, visit agilerabbit.com. Here is Professor John Ellis, CBE, on the view from CERN, where do we come from and where are we going? Recorded in September 2018. So I actually started my uh, PhD uh, at the end of the 1960s. When I was starting, I had a copy of this painting by Paul Gauguin on uh, the wall of my office uh, to uh, remind me why I came into work every day. Uh, these people on this uh, South Sea island are asking themselves some very basic, one might say almost uh, metaphysical questions, like uh, what are we, uh, where do we come from, and, uh, and where are we going? So what I would argue is uh, that's exactly what we physicists are trying to do. We're trying to answer these Gauguin questions. So concretely, what we particle physicists try to do is to uh, understand what the matter in the universe is made of. And in so doing, I think we also address these other Gauguin questions. And that's basically the story that I want to tell you in the course of this talk. If we're going to be discussing you know, where do we come from and where are we going, then uh, we need to uh, recall uh, what we know about the evolution of the universe. So uh, here's a sort of image of the expansion of the universe from uh, a Big Bang that occurred about 13.8 uh, billion years ago. And uh, the universe today is about 10 to the 8, 20 centimeter, 28 centimeters across. And uh, the astronomers with their telescopes, they look at stars, they look at galaxies, they look at planets, and they look back towards the beginning. What they see close to the beginning, there was some radiation that was emitted, but they can't see beyond that. It's like a firewall, uh, the great uh, firewall of the universe. Now, what we physicists try to do is, uh, on the one hand, try to explain you know, what the visible stuff in the universe is made of, the other thing that we try to do is to look beyond this sort of cosmic firewall of what happened in the first moments after the Big Bang. And of course, we also address the question of you know, what might happen in the future. So uh, if you look at this picture, you might think, well, the universe is going to continue expanding forever. In fact, there's evidence that the expansion is actually accelerating at the moment. But it's not obvious that that's going to continue forever, and I'll come back to that later on. So uh, what are we? So uh, for a physicist, that becomes the question, what is matter made of? Why do things weigh? We all know that we weigh too much. Uh, but the physicist asks, well, why do we weigh anything at all? And that's one question where I think we have made significant progress in the last few years. Where do we come from? So what is the origin of the matter in the universe and concretely the stuff that we are made of? Now the astronomers, when they look at stars, when they look at galaxies, they find that there's probably some sort of invisible matter, so-called dark matter, in addition to the stuff that's visible. And that that invisible dark matter actually holds the galaxies together and holds clusters of galaxies together. And you know, it's possible that that is some sort of particle as yet unknown that we might hope to discover in our experiments. Where do we come from? Where are we going? So how does the universe evolve? Well, we know 
Einstein told us you know, the basic equations, but you have to put into those equations the matter content of the universe. So that's where we particle physicists come in. I mentioned the universe is 13.8 billion years old, 10 to the 8, 28 centimeters across. How come it's so big and old? And of course, you know, where are we going? You know, what is the future of the universe? So the job of us particle physicists is to ask these questions. I don't promise to provide all the answers. I think we've provided at least some of the answers and I'll describe to you what we do and what we don't know about the answers to these questions. So on this ruler, we've got a bunch of different distance scales in uh, physics and cosmology. So down the bottom right-hand side, we've got the size of the observable universe today, 10 to the 28 centimeters. And then up here in the top left-hand corner, we've got the smallest scale that uh, my theoretical colleagues dare to speculate about, the scale maybe of the universe right at the beginning of the Big Bang, which is 10 to the minus 32 centimeters. And then in between, we've got uh, the distance between the Earth and the Sun, sizes of atoms, protons, and so on and so forth. And about halfway along this scale, we have the human scale. So uh, this is a picture of Albert Einstein and his kid sister when they were about uh, a meter tall. Roughly speaking, they're halfway between the biggest scales in the universe and the smallest scales. So what are we, or at least what were Albert Einstein and his kid sister? Well, they were made of uh, molecules. Those molecules were made up out of uh, atoms. Those atoms were discovered in the first half of the last century contain nuclei with clouds of electrons around them. In the second half of the last century, it was discovered that those nuclei were made up out of protons and neutrons, which in turn were made up out of more fundamental objects that we call quarks. So as things stand at the moment, uh, the answer to Gauguin's first question, first approximation to it, is to say, well, we're made of electrons and quarks. The astronomers say, well, in addition to that visible stuff, there is additional invisible dark matter. Now, what we do with our experiments, uh, in particular the Large Hadron Collider at CERN that I'm going to be discussing uh, later on, is we look inside atom, inside the proton, as far back as we can towards the processes that uh, were important very early in the history of the Big Bang. So on the one hand, you can regard these uh, colliders as being a super microscope. On the other hand, it's also in some sense a sort of super telescope might, for example, tell us what the dark matter is, or at least tell us more about where we come from, what happened in the very early stages of the universe. So the story of particle physics can be traced back a bit over 100 years. This is a picture of uh, Victor Hess, who in uh, 1912 uh, went up uh, with a balloon, and he discovered that the uh, Earth is being bombarded with energetic particles from outer space cosmic rays. When these energetic particles hit the atmosphere, the energy is converted into, into other particles. And in the first half of the last century, many discoveries in particle physics were made using those cosmic rays. Antimatter, for example, which I'll be discussing later on. But you know, if you wanted to study these particles precisely in detail, you need to do it in controlled conditions. And so people decided, well, we'll make our own cosmic rays. We're going to make our particle accelerators 
and we're going to collide particles under controlled conditions in the laboratory so that we can make precise measurements and figure out what's going on. So those experiments led to what we call the standard model of particle physics, which is an extremely uninspiring name. Uh, but, okay, we're stuck with it now, don't know how to change it. Anyway, this is a theory that was proposed by uh, Abdus Salam, originally from Pakistan, and two American theorists, Glashar and Weinberg, in the 1960s. And their theory makes essential use of the ideas that were proposed by Peter Higgs, whom I already shouted out once, and I'll be coming back to him later on. So actually, the first few years after they proposed their theory, nobody paid very much attention. But in the early 1970s, there was an experiment at CERN that for the first time found a new phenomenon predicted by Abdus Salam and, uh, and his colleagues. And subsequent experiments verified predictions of the so-called standard model with great precision. So what is this standard model? So I already mentioned the fact that uh, inside nuclei, the uh, fundamental particles are things called quarks. We know of uh, six different types of quark which have been discovered and measured using particle accelerators. Talked about the electron. So uh, that has two heavier friends, one called the muon that was discovered in cosmic rays and another one called the tau that was discovered in particle accelerators. And then in between, in the middle there, we have neutrinos. I'm not going to say very much uh, about neutrinos, but there's uh, three types of them. So between these fundamental particles, we distinguish four fundamental interactions. There's gravity, which uh, keeps even theoretical physicists' feet more or less firmly on the ground. There's electromagnetism. There is the strong nuclear force that holds nuclei together. And then there's another weak nuclear force that's actually for responsible for forms of radioactivity. So I, I like to think of uh, these particles and these interactions as being in some sense the, uh, the cosmic DNA. They uh, encode all the information that you need to make all the visible stuff in the universe, stars, planets. Well, what I said is not quite true because there's one thing that's missing on this slide uh, and that is an explanation of where particle masses come from. Where do the weight of an elementary particle come from? And that is what I want to talk about next. Okay, so mass. So Newton talked about mass. He said that our weight is proportional to our mass. Einstein, he said that E is equal to mc squared. Energy is related to mass. But neither of them actually explained where the masses come from. And that's where Mr. Higgs comes in. So uh, there he is with his uh, theory on the blackboard behind him. A key feature of his theory is this thing written phi here, which is what we call a field. And associated with that field, there is a particle, he said, which we call the Higgs boson, in the same way that the electromagnetic field has a particle associated with it, which is the photon. Okay, so what's this field idea? So we're familiar with electromagnetic field. We've heard of the gravitational field, for example, of the sun that holds the Earth in, in orbit around it. So Peter Higgs postulated another type of field, so his field is a bit different because unlike electromagnetic and gravitational fields that have sources like electric charges, he said this is something which is universal, homogeneous, and isotropic throughout the entire universe. 
So I propose to you in an analogy. Imagine that you're in the middle of Siberia in the middle of winter. So you have a snow field in all directions. Now, a particle in this Higgs field is a lot like a person trying to cross this snow field. If you're lucky, you might have skis. Then you skim across the top, you go very fast, and that's like a particle that doesn't interact with the Higgs snow field, a particle which does not have a mass, like a photon, which travels at the speed of light. So, no interaction with the Higgs field, no mass, travel at the speed of light, like a skier. Alternatively, maybe you've got snowshoes. You've got snowshoes, then you sink into the snow, you interact with that Higgs snow field, you go slower than the skier, that's like a particle with a mass that always travels at less than the speed of light. So maybe like an electron, for example. And of course, you know, maybe you're crazy enough to try to walk through Siberia in your boots. In that case, you're going to go very slowly because you're going to interact very strongly with that Higgs snow field. You go much slower than the skier, much less than the speed of light, like a particle with a, a large mass. So that's the basic idea. Universal medium and how strongly you interact with that medium determines how big your mass is. So what's the snow field made of? Well, it's, it's made of snowflakes. So you can in some sense regard these snowflakes as being the quanta, the fundamental constituents of that Higgs snow field. And in the same way, Peter Higgs said, well, we've got this Higgs field and there is this associated particle called the Higgs boson. Now, snowflakes are kind of interesting things. There's many, many different types of them because they're made out of molecules, water molecules arranged in various different ways. And we're having a big argument now in the particle physics community about whether there's just one Higgs boson or whether there might be gazillions of them with some sort of internal constituents arranged in different ways. But so far, we've just found one. And I'm going to talk now about how the Higgs boson was found and what might lie above and beyond it. So I declare my uh, personal interest in this. I actually got interested in the Higgs boson in 1975 and together with a couple of colleagues, Mary Gaillard and Dimitri Nanopoulos, we did what I think was the first systematic study of what a Higgs boson might look like in an experiment. Now in those days, these ideas were regarded as being very speculative and uh, the distinguished, you know, grey-haired professors didn't like these ideas. So we were very careful in our paper. We said we do not want to encourage big experimental searches for the Higgs boson. Fortunately, our advice was not taken. And uh, here you have uh, an aerial picture of the location of the uh, Large Hadron Collider at CERN. 27 kilometers in circumference. Hadron, that just means uh, nuclear particle, and collider, well, we bang them together. Right? The collider itself is uh, in a tunnel about 100 meters underground. So you see uh, a line of uh, thousands of magnets going all the way around at uh, 27 kilometers. Inside those magnets, there are streams of particles, protons going in opposite directions. Each one has approximately the energy of a fly. They're traveling very close to the speed of light, but a little bit less, and they make 
billions of collisions per second. And in those collisions, we set out to try to figure out where particle masses come from, what the dark matter might be, the nature of the plasma that filled the universe when it was a fraction of a second old, and the small difference between matter and antimatter that could explain why there is any matter in the universe at all, as I'll discuss a bit later. So around this 27 kilometers ring, there are four places where the particles collide. And around each of those collision points, there is a, a big particle detector. 2012 was the year in which the Higgs boson was finally discovered. And I think it's fair to say that in the particle physics community, there was mass Higgsteria. So this is what uh, a Higgs boson might look like. This is a uh, computer simulation showing uh, two particles colliding along here. Their energy is converted into a whole bunch of other particles. And so you can see charged particles. Those are these yellow tracks. Uh, neutral particles. Those are these little blobs here. And in particular here, you can see one, two, three, four energetic charged particles, which in this simulation came from the decay of a Higgs boson. So you sift through trillions of collisions, you sift through hundreds of particles, and you hope to find something that looks like that. So this is one example uh, observed by the Atlas collaboration. This is a computer uh, image of the detector, and you can see these charged particles coming out and the neutral particles, and you can see one, two, three, four, almost straight red lines and those are energetic charged particles which might have come from the decay of a Higgs boson. So another possibility that we actually calculated back in 1975 is that the Higgs boson might decay, decay into pairs of photons. So photons, those are the particles of light. So you might observe events where there are two blobs of energy coming from photons. So no charged track leading towards them. The charged tracks go enough, off in other directions. So both the ATLAS and CMS detectors observed events of these two types. And finally, on July the 4th, 2012, they plucked up enough courage to say, we're sure now that we're seeing an excess of such events, which could only be due to some new particle. So that was what was announced on July the 4th, 2012, the discovery of a new particle. And then this is another picture from the same day, which I rather like, uh, for two reasons. So one is that over here you see Peter Higgs meeting another theorist who proposed similar ideas back in 1964. But somehow for 48 years they succeeded in avoiding each other. And this was the instant when the two of them met in the CERN Auditorium and of course the following year they shared the Nobel Prize. The other reason why I like the picture is because this is Fabiola Gianotti, who announced the discovery for the Atlas collaboration, and uh, she is now the Director General of CERN. We have no glass ceiling at CERN. Okay, so what was reported on that day was the discovery of a new particle. But was that actually the Higgs boson? And I like to compare it to when you're doing a jigsaw puzzle and uh, you discover this piece of cardboard at the back of a sofa, picture's been rubbed off, it's all bent. Is that the missing piece of the jigsaw? So this is something which I set out to analyse with my then PhD student, uh, Tivong Yu. Well, to make a, a long story short, perfect agreement 
with the prediction of the standard model. We wrote in our paper that this particle walks and quacks like a Higgs boson. Subsequently, the Atlas and CMS collaborations did a similar analysis, more data, more professional, more accurate. Same conclusion. This really, really, really looks like the Higgs boson. And that was enough to convince the Swedish Academy, who in 2013 gave the Nobel Prize to uh, Peter Higgs and uh, his colleague Francois Anglais. The discovery of the Higgs boson was a, a big deal because if the electron didn't have a mass, then it would always travel at the speed of light and it wouldn't stick around to form atoms. Massless electrons would escape. There'd be no heavy nuclei, weak interactions would not be weak, life would be impossible, everything would be radioactive. So the existence of the Higgs boson is a big deal and we have got a lot to be grateful to Peter Higgs for. So what else might there be? The standard model of particle physics is not enough. Calculations within the theory suggest that empty space is unstable. The theory doesn't provide an explanation for dark matter. It doesn't tell us where the matter in the universe came from. It doesn't explain how big particle masses are. It just says it's possible to have a mass, but it doesn't tell you how big they are. It doesn't tell you anything about neutrinos. It doesn't tell you why the universe is so big and old. It doesn't make a quantum theory of gravity. So, so these are the things that we're now trying to study uh, with further experiments at the LHC. So, so let me say a little bit about the first question. Empty space is unstable, according to this standard model. So, so here is a sort of cartoon illustrating the problem. So uh, we are here. So the horizontal axis is how much Higgs there is in that field. So we've got a little bit of Higgs, okay, and that gives masses which are not too big. But over here on the right-hand side, there is another possible state where there will be a lot more Higgs, if you like, a great big deep snowdrift. And if we were in that, then the universe would collapse in a so-called big crunch. According to quantum mechanics, everything vibrates. And in particular, there are fluctuations in the depth of this Higgs field. And those fluctuations are such that quantum mechanically, eventually, we can tunnel through this barrier and fall into the snowdrift, in which case the universe would end with a big crunch. So that's a bit of a problem. Another bit of a problem is to understand how we got here in the first place. Because in the early history of the universe, it was very hot, very dense. Things would have been fluctuating all over the place. We could have expected to have fluctuated over the barrier and down into that snowdrift. So I think that we have to erect a barrier to prevent ourselves from falling into this big crunch. I have to have some physics beyond the standard model that I've described up until now. And one such theory is a theory called supersymmetry, which I particularly like. There's lots of reasons for liking this theory. It would not only stabilize empty space, it predicted correctly the mass and properties of the Higgs boson, and it contains a candidate for dark matter. Wonderful theory. So, so, so these are the regular particles in the standard model over here on the left-hand side. And according to supersymmetry, every one of these particles has a, uh, a partner which 
has the same internal properties like electric charge, for example, but it spins at a different rate. The lightest of those additional particles could be the one that provides the dark matter. So the story of dark matter goes back to the 1930s. The guy who really put dark matter on the map was this Swiss astrophysicist, Fritz Zwicky. So what he did was he observed uh, galaxies in a cluster called Coma, and he found those galaxies were moving relatively quickly. And he said, hang on a second, in order to hold those galaxies together in that cluster, we need some additional gravitational field, gravitational glue, some extra invisible dark matter. So that was the 1930s. So actually people didn't pay an enormous amount of attention to him for many years. The person who more than anybody else convinced astrophysicists, cosmologists, particle physicists that they should take this idea seriously was the astronomer Vera Rubin, who made detailed measurements of the motions of stars within galaxies. And what she found was that they also moved too quickly, and that also inside galaxies you needed some additional gravitational field, another indication for dark matter. The question is whether that invisible stuff might be made of some sort of particle, maybe a particle that we can make at the LHC, maybe, for example, supersymmetric particles. So, so how do you look for dark matter? Well, dark matter at some level should interact with regular matter. Early in the universe, there was probably lots of dark matter particles around. Those would have annihilated into regular particles. And in our colliders, we can reverse the process. We can collide regular particles. And in those collisions, we can hope to produce pairs of those dark matter particles. Alternatively, we could do experiments pointing in the transverse direction, where we look for collisions of dark matter particles with standard model particles. Uh, and those collisions might then deposit energy in detectors, which we can pick up. So the LHC, what do we do? We collide particles. Maybe we produce pairs of dark matter particles. We can't see those dark matter particles. We can see all sorts of other particles coming out. And so you might see events that look like this, where you've got a bunch of visible particles coming out on one side of the detector, but nothing visible on the other side. Nothing visible because that's where the dark matter particles went. So the experiments have been looking for such events, but uh, no luck so far. But our interest in antimatter is to try to understand why matter and antimatter differ ever so slightly. So antimatter was postulated by the theoretical physicist Dirac in the 1920s. And he said, according to relativity and quantum mechanics, there should be this whole family of antimatter particles, which would have the same mass as regular particles, the same spin as regular particles, but opposite electric charges. And those were discovered in the cosmic rays, studied using accelerators, and are actually now used routinely in medical diagnosis. And everybody else thought at the time was that matter and antimatter will be exactly equal and opposite. But it was discovered in the 1960s. It's not quite the case. The Russian physicist Sakharov suggested that that very small difference between matter and antimatter might explain why it is that in the universe today we see blobs of matter like stars but no large blobs of antimatter. And one of the objectives of experiments at the LHC is now to study those matter-antimatter differences in more detail and try to see whether Sakharov was right. Okay, so that brings me almost to the end of what I wanted to say. 
But I just wanted to circle back to uh, Albert Einstein. Here he is, older than in the first picture. I, I almost think he looks a little bit sad. Maybe because he had this dream of making a unified theory of all the fundamental interactions, but he had some premonition that he was never going to succeed. And so this theory does not have a unified theory of everything. But we're continuing to follow in his footsteps. One of the ideas that we're continuing to think about is the possibility that in addition to the up, down, sideways, forwards and backwards, there might be additional hidden dimensions all curled up. That's something which is a very popular idea in the context of string theory. In some of those string theories, there's the possibility that gravity might become strong at the scale of energy of the LHC. And in some of those theories, you might be able to stick particles together to make microscopic black holes. So you may remember 10 years ago when the LHC got started, there was a lot of sensational articles saying, well, maybe uh, the LHC was going to destroy the planet. Anyway, they needn't have worried because the same crazy theory that predicted those black holes also predicted that they would vanish instantaneously. We've been bombarded with cosmic rays, some of which have much higher energies than the LHC for, for billions of years, and we're still here. So don't worry about black holes eating up the Earth. Instead, black holes will be a fantastic laboratory for studying our ideas about a quantum theory of gravity and maybe finally completing Einstein's dream. So that's it. I hope I've convinced you that the LHC is indeed not only the world's most powerful microscope, but it's also a sort of a super telescope capable of addressing Gauguin's questions. Thank you.